Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Joining us now is Kenneth Fetter, um, who's written a book called Frauds, Myths, Mysteries, Science, and Pseudoscience in Archaeology. Uh, Thanks for taking the time. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely my pleasure. Wow. Um, So, what got you into actually writing books about this sort of thing, about the frauds and the myths yeah. and, and some of that stuff behind science and, and, and archaeology? Sure. sure. Listen, I, so I have been teaching now at Central Connecticut State University for like 42 years. I started in 1947. I was a callow, 1977, I was a callow youth. And my first semester teaching, they told me I had to teach a course called Search in Anthropology. I didn't know what that was. They said, well, it's for introductory kids, it's for freshmen, just whatever they want to hear about, talk about. So it's how the science of anthropology works. And archaeology is a subfield of anthropology. So I I had no idea what to teach. So I did something that was either really brave or really stupid, probably a little of both. I walked into my, my first semester teaching, my first class, and I asked the students, well, I'm an archaeologist, what topics do you want to cover? Let's you guys make the syllabus for the class, which was kind of interesting. And the thing is, though, most of them came up with things like Eric von Donegan's Chariots of the Gods, or the Lost Continent of Atlantis, or the mystery of Stonehenge, or and the, who were the native who were Native Americans? Where did they come from? So there were all these kind of mysteries that these kids had in mind, based on what they had read, maybe what they had seen on uh, on television, what they and seen uh, uh, documentaries on TV. And so I just made up a list. And the list, for the most part, were these kind of strange or fringe uh, area claims about the human past. I didn't expect that, but I thought, okay, that's cool. And uh, we went through, and it was, it was a, a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun me doing the research, and a lot of the fun the students sharing what they knew about ancient astronauts and Atlantis and and the Piltdown Man fossil. And what was cool was that after I taught that the first time, I thought, well, this class works so well, why don't I make it a regular course? Problem was, there were no books available for that course. Um, there had been a book years before called Lost Tribes and Sunken Continents by an archaeologist, uh, Robert Walkup. But that book was out of print and was kind of dated. So I just kind of, on a whim, put together a book prospectus covering the kinds of topics that I figure my students are a lot like other students, the kinds of things that they're interested in that they don't necessarily hear about in college. 
and I put that prospectus together, sent it around. And I think I got as, as many rejections as J.K. Rowling did for, for the Harry Potter books. So I have something in common with her. Um, not her bank account, but I have that much in common with her. And uh, eventually, though, I found a publisher actually in California, uh, Bayfield Publishing up in Mountain View. They loved the idea, and they published the book. This was in 1990. And Bayfield sold out to McGraw-Hill, and McGraw-Hill sold some of their books off to Oxford University Press, which is where I am now. And I'm working on the 10th edition of that same book. So obviously, there's there's this need, uh, especially in the university classrooms, for kids, especially now that they, with the Internet and with, with all these cable documentaries, there's a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily a fraud, fraud not necessarily a, a, myth, a myth, not necessarily a mystery, but things that kids are interested in that they don't hear, they don't read about in a regular archaeology textbook or hear about in a regular archaeology class. Um, and so it's, I think it's been a huge success. The book is still out there. And as I said, 10th edition will be coming out in 2020. So you've been a professor for a long time. Oh, and my God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so let me ask you a question. So do you think that it's a problem in the academy that professors, and then maybe even before that, you know, teachers at the high school and middle school level aren't addressing these sort of pseudosciency controversies um, so that students, you know, you would think that, that, you know, you get into college, maybe you should know that the uh, aliens didn't build... You know, the pyramids or right. something like that. But is is there a problem that they're not addressing this? Here's the, here's the deal. I, for a long time, I was, I'll exaggerate, I was a lone voice howling out in the wilderness that we really need to address these things. A lot of my colleagues looked at this as a negative. You know, if you bring up Eric Von Donegan and Ancient Aliens, if you bring up Ignatius Donnelly and the Lost Continent of Atlantis, that, that just gives them publicity. That that puts air that that blows air onto the fire of this. So if you just ignore it, it'll go away. And I, for years, have been saying no, it doesn't go away. Maybe uh, students aren't car courageous enough to raise their hand in class and say, "But what about the aliens building the pyramids?" But they certainly are thinking that. Uh, uh, back in the mid 1980s, in fact, I did a bunch of surveys, questionnaires to my students and other faculty and other universities did the same thing. And what we found out was that about a third of the students in our classes either strongly agreed with or mildly agreed with ancient aliens. And that a real big percentage of people just said, well, we don't know. Well, you know, when you've got that, that's a major issue for any science. Imagine being a math professor and students thinking, well, I'm not really convinced that 2 plus 2 is 4, but I'll go along with it for the class. That's a real problem. Um, and, but more and more, uh, in fact, just our, the Society for American Archaeology is the big national organization for, for archaeologists, and we have meetings every year. And last this past uh, spring, we had a meeting in Albuquerque. And there were a number of symposia, a number of sessions devoted to, listen, a lot of people have a lot of questions about what happened in the human past. And if we're archaeologists, we are obliged to respond to those questions. And even if the questions are about ancient aliens or Atlantis or giants living in the old days or whatever, that's a, it's a good entry. I come from I'm here in Connecticut. One of our favorite sons is P.T. Barnum. And everybody knows that P.T. Barnum was the circus entrepreneur. He ran a museum. And P.T. Barnum is associated with the Cardiff Giant. And he's associated with the Fiji Mermaid, which is just like a, a, the body of a fish sewn onto the trunk of a monkey, and he passed it off as a real mermaid. And even P.T. Barnum said, I know that stuff is fake, but that's what gets people in the door. That's what put their, puts their butts in the seats of my museum or in the seats of my circus, and then I can share with them real science. And I think that more and more people are recognizing that, that you know what? If the reason you're in my archaeology class is because you watch Ancient Aliens, that's okay, but I'm going to address that directly. And I think we're seeing that more and more people are have embraced that as one of our jobs. It's not just to teach what the half-life of radiocarbon is or how we reconstruct an ancient diet. That's important stuff. But, <laughs> but when people are, are in our classes and they think that maybe the Egyptians weren't smart enough to build the pyramids and aliens did, 
we've got a real problem unless we address that directly. So I think that's happening more and more. So, so let me ask you a question. So it looks like you started teaching there around, I'm going to guess, the early 1980s? 1977. Oh, wow. Okay. So, uh-huh. the, so, so the big show on TV at the time, I think, was Leonard Nimoy's In Search Of. Yep. So, 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 do you think a lot of people were getting their ideas from 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 that show and shows like that? Yeah, I, I actually do think so. Um, and it's, it's it's no coincidence that they they hired Leonard Nimoy. You know, you know the old joke about the guy who says, "I'm not actually a doctor, but I play one on TV," and then it's for a commercial it's for a commercial for cough medicine, and that really did happen. And in my view, you know, Leonard Nimoy should have opened up that first episode of In Search Of by saying, Hi, I, I'm not really a science officer on a starship, but I play one on TV, and so you can trust what I have to say. Um, the shows are interesting. What's, what's funny is that a couple of colleagues of mine are now doing a podcast called In Research Of, and what they're doing is, is deconstructing every one of the episodes of In Search Of. And in fact, I just did one of them on a site up here in New Hampshire, in fact, a place called Mystery Hill, now called America Stonehenge. And they did an episode of that years and years ago, of course, when In Search Of, when in Search of was, was current, the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, it was kind of fun going back and revisiting those, those episodes. And, 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 and what do you think is driving some of these beliefs now? Because when we look at polls of these, you know, uh, cryptozoology or, right. or, or the or pseudo-archaeology, I mean, we've got large numbers of people who buy into these ideas, sometimes, you know, majorities. So do you think it's the History Channel putting its name behind ancient aliens and, you know, 1950s aliens and... Um, or do you think it's something more innate in people? Are they getting this, these ideas from somewhere else? You know, I'm not even sure. I, I don't know if you if you remember the, the History Channel. We used to jokingly refer to it as the Hitler Channel because, like, <laughs> yeah. all of the shows are about Hitler. And then, so then, then they embrace this this uh, this marketing strategy of going really out there, going really extreme with the ancient aliens and with Oak Creek Island and with cryptozoology and, and it, a lot of episodes about Atlantis, and I don't know. I mean, I think that ultimately, you know, the old the old cliche of a bunch of people sitting around a campfire, and it's it's late at night, and somebody tells a ghost story, and they say this is absolutely true, and it's scary, and it's entertaining, and it's interesting, but really, people aren't quite sure that it's true or not true, but they're entertained by it. I think a lot of the folks who say, yeah, that ancient alien thing, that sounds legit are people who, who the, the fault lies, at least in part, with people like me, archaeologists, who have never addressed this directly. So when there's a vacuum, an intellectual vacuum out there, and nobody's talking about how did the Egyptians build the pyramids, that vacuum is always going to be filled. And often it's filled with people who have ideas that are not supported by science. And that's our fault for not preempting that, for being proactive about that. And so, which is why today archaeologists basically have to be reactive. We have to wait for Giorgio and his gang to say something that we think is absurd and then respond to it. So, it's partially the fault of archaeologists who for too many years, as we kind of mentioned, have kind of ignored that pop, the popular archaeology, the popular conceptions about human antiquity. Um, and then it's also, hey, listen, there's nobody in the world who would be more stoked if they found a flying saucer under one of the Egyptian pyramids. I think that would be so incredibly cool. It would change everything, right? change our understanding of the universe. If we knew that there was an intelligent life out there who had actually landed on Earth and had interacted with human beings. But you know what? I'd be stoked, but I don't see any evidence for it. And but I think that, that because I am aware of the evidence, I know it's not true, where people out there are thinking, yeah, but that's so interesting to think about. Uh, when I ask my students in my class, and, and, you know, I don't know that I'm getting an absolutely honest answer. How many of you guys have ever uh, have heard of Ancient Aliens, that, the show on the History Channel? They all raise their hands. How many of you watch it, have seen any episodes of it at all? About, only about half of them raise their hands. And how many of you watch it every day? In a class of 100 kids, maybe it's one or two. And, and maybe it's one or two who strongly believe that, 
where the rest have gone, I don't know, but it's really interesting to think about. Uh, the thing is, that provides archaeologists with an opportunity to go out there and do public outreach and talk to people and give lectures and write books and, and do radio shows where you say, hey, listen, guys, we're not just, we're not deniers, we're skeptics. We're, we're from Missouri, you know, the show me state. If, if you think aliens built the pyramids, well, show me. Don't just tell me it was really hard. We know it was really hard. But show me what's the physical evidence for that. Because we don't think that exists. But we do have evidence for Egyptians building the pyramids. And we go from there. And then what we hope is, ultimately, true believers, maybe we can't move them. Maybe we can't convince them. But the rest of the, the, the population, uh, I think that they are certainly reachable and reasonable. I see that in emails I get all the time. When I do... I. I've done talking head bits on some of these shows. And I'll get emails from people saying, Fader, you're delusional. There's no way the Egyptians could have built the pyramids. And what I do is I say, look, don't base your decision on a 50-minute television show. Read this article. Read this book and get back to me. And it's amazing how many people then respond by saying, you know, Fader, I didn't realize you guys had all this information or all this data. I said, yeah, because you're not going to hear about that on Ancient Aliens. You have to read more deeply. And it's the job of archaeologists to, to, to make that, to publish those things in a way that's, that the, the, a popular audience is going to, going to um, embrace. What are some of the goofiest um, pseudo-archaeological theories that, that, you, that you've run into and that maybe you address in the book? This, this one has actual personal meaning for me. Uh, I was a consultant for a video about an artifacts called the Michigan Relics. And this was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, all these bizarre artifacts were being found in Michigan with written inscriptions on them that nobody could translate and strange carvings. And archaeologists recognized clearly that these things were fake. Uh, in fact, what, I mean, this is kind of bizarre, right? Um, the, uh, the the World's Fair in Chicago, which was, I think, what, late 19th century, they sent out people to purchase art Indian artifacts to display in one of the pavilions at the fair. And their, their uh, representative actually heard about these Michigan relics and went into the basement, was introduced to the guy who makes the things, introduced to his basement. He saw him making these relics. He didn't realize that this guy was a representative from the World's Fair. And so he admitted fully that he's been making these things for years and selling them off and people are going crazy about them. Um, so in that video, the really funny part was they interviewed a guy whose name is Wayne Bing, who is, uh, he believes very strongly that the United States was populated by people from Europe and Asia and Africa many, many, many years before Columbus, many years before the Vikings. And he holds up an artifact in his hand, and it's a little oil lamp. And he says that he obtained this at an estate sale in either, either Virginia or West Virginia. And what he says is, this oil lamp, if you found it in Israel, if you found it in Syria, if you found it in Jordan, would be completely in place. You would believe that it belonged there. But this wasn't found there. I picked this up in West Virginia. And the funny thing was, I recognized the exact form of the oil lamp because my father had one because he bought it at an antiques place in New York City. These, these little oil lamps from the Holy Land, they're like 60 bucks each, and there are thousands of them, and people all over the country own them. Now, the thing that I thought was hilarious is my, my dad passed away in 2012, and I, have, I own that oil lamp, but I thought, oh my God, if Wayne May had purchased this oil lamp from an estate sale run by my, you know, my father's estate, would he claim that it came directly from Israel? Would he not know that you can buy these things now as antiques in antique shops? And I just was, I thought that was absolutely hilarious. Um, that's the kind of thing that, that drives you crazy. That's the kind of thing where you wonder people need to apply their, they have to put their skeptics hat on. They have to uh, show me the proof, show me the money, show me the evidence. And more often than not, they don't do that. So I found that hilarious. Another really, I think a, a more important general story, right? Um, the Cart of Giants story is a hilarious story. I, I give lectures about that all the time, and if you want, we can talk about that in a little bit. Um, but I had just given a story about this. It was an, a 19th century fake. It was a 
carved statue that was put in the ground, but was interpreted as a giant petrified man from before Noah's flood. People made a lot of money on this thing. Scientists looked at it and said, no, it's a fake, but nobody wanted to believe the science. And until one of the perps actually confessed, this thing was a major deal, a major issue. Hit all the newspapers. They were making thousands of dollars every week displaying the giant. So I gave my lecture about the Cardiff Giant, and at the very end of the lecture, a very nice guy came up to me with two big ring binders filled with plastic sleeves, and he lays them down on the table and says, Dr. Fader, these aren't archaeological frauds, are they? And I opened up the notebook, not knowing what I was going to find, and in these sleeves were photographs, and photograph after photograph after photograph of large rocks large boulders. Photographs in open fields, photographs in the middle of the woods, photographs on the bottoms of mountains. And I looked at these, and I'm an archaeologist and also trained in geology. Most archaeologists take a lot of geology courses. That the, the, the sites that we excavate represent the lives of people who adapted to their environment, and they needed to access rocks. Uh, and we have to know about those rocks. And we have to know about stratigraphy, the layering of the rocks, to be able to date sites. So I've taken a bunch of courses in geology. When I saw these photographs, I said, you know, I think these things are glacial erratics. And I explained that to the guy, that all over the world are these large boulders that are out of place. Uh, They're not the right raw material where they're found. That's That's not the parent material where they're found. They're sometimes found not just miles away from their actual source, but found on the tops of mountains. And scientists as far back as the late 1700s and early 1800s recognized that these, that was a mystery. How did those rocks get there? And they went up into the Alps and they saw glacial ice actually moving large boulders around. And they hypothesized, you know what, maybe in the past those glaciers were a lot more extensive and pushed way beyond the mountains, and that those boulders represent the places where glaciers push those rocks. Those rocks are called erratics. So I explained to the gentleman, I said, look, I can't tell for sure, but I'm pretty sure the photographs you showed me here, and there were a lot of them, are glacial erratics. His response to me was really interesting. He said, Dr. Fader, I don't know anything about geology, I know those are not erratics. Now, think about that for a second. So this gentleman just agreed, he admitted, he confessed that he didn't know anything about the most relevant science to deal with the mystery of the big rocks. But he was going to make a definitive diagnosis about what those rocks were anyway. I tell my students, hey, listen, if you come to me and tell me, hey, Dr. Fader, I'm having these horrible headaches. I've got double vision. I'm dizzy all the time. I can't sleep. My head is throbbing. What do you think is wrong with me? If I say to you, well, I don't know anything about medicine, but I'm going to guess that if you cut back on gluten, you'll be fine. If I tell you that, don't believe me. Don't accept what I've just said. I just told you. I don't know anything about the relevant field of science, medicine. And I tell them that is why I said, look, kids, if you're ever in an argument with somebody or or a debate and you can honestly, legitimately say, you know what, I don't know anything about this, then the only rational and logical thing to do at that point is to keep your mouth shut. Uh, Here being, again, from Connecticut, it was was Mark Twain who said, and I'm going to paraphrase, it's better to remain quiet and have people think you a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And that, I just, I just wonder about folks who are freely understand and admit that they don't know anything about the science, but they're going to have a definitive uh, and certain conclusion anyway. That, to me, is just sort of weird. I think it's part of a, a larger issue in all the sciences that, for whatever reason these days, being an expert or having a whole lot of training or experience is sometimes looked as a bad thing, as not, not a as like a, a bug in the system, not a feature. And again, as a scientist, that's surprising. I'm not right all the time. Of course not. And people who have very little training aren't wrong all the time. Of course not. But what are the odds that somebody who knows nothing about the field 
is going to come up with something that's going to flip everything on its head or cause us all to rewrite the textbooks. That's what I find funny, but not, not ha-ha funny, but funny in an interesting way. So l- l- let me ask you this. So, you know, when I watch these these ideas on TV about the ancient aliens and, and whatnot, I wonder, you know, I don't doubt that some of these people are true believers, but some of it seems to be grift, too. I mean, do you, I mean, how much of what people believe out there isn't just a, a, you know, misconstruing the evidence that's available, but just outright lies? Yeah, that's that's really, really hard to say. Um, I'm sure that you have a family show, so I can't use the language that I would would like to use here. But you you know the, the magician's pen and teller? Right, famous yeah. yeah. magicians, and they had a show on cable, and it was called Bull Blank. And the reason it was called Bull Blank is that they, apparently they went to the the lawyers for it was Showtime, I think, and they wanted to to call the show Liars, and then show how these people who are making these claims about uh, you know water that's going to cure you of cancer or whatever were liars, and the lawyers told them. You, you, you can't call somebody a liar. They can sue you for libel. But you can say that, in your opinion, what they're saying is bull blank. And so I, I find myself in that position where I'm not going to say that anybody's an outright liar. But what I can say is, well, certainly what they're what they're peddling is bull blank, and I can show you why. Uh, that's always been the question with Eric Von Donnegan and always been the question with Giorgio Tsoukalos and a, and a bunch of these other guys. Do they really, in the end, do they really believe what they're saying? And, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that between them and, and their conscience to kind of clear that up. Uh, but you're right. So many of the things that they say are so over the top that you wonder, really, is this just is this just because they figure they can get enough people to turn on the show because what they're saying is so bizarre? Uh, uh, there are episodes of Ancient Aliens where they literally say that the aliens were behind the American Revolution because they wanted the Americas, I guess, to, they wanted the United States to be its own country. There, are, there is an episode of Ancient Aliens where apparently they're claiming that aliens were involved in the Civil War. I guess the aliens are abolitionists. And, you know, you hear that, and I know any thinking person is going to say, wait, what? Really? But that's what they're claiming. Uh, and again, it's, uh, they're the ones who are going to have to uh, explain whether they really and truly believe that. Um, in the next edition of my book, in fact, I, I wonder if it's ultimately if the show was really a comedy in the end. But not, they're not even trying to be serious at this point. So one thing that concerns me about about a lot of these claims is that it's not just they're putting forward their alternative view of how the world works. It's that they have to call into question um, all the relevant experts. So, you know, I will see on Ancient Aliens, well, you know, we have this idea. And then when questioned, well, how come, you know, aliens aren't the prevailing, you know, science right now? Well, it's being covered up. And, you know, the mainstream science doesn't want you to know about this. And the governments want to hide this from you. Um, do you find that that makes it even worse? That, that oh, yeah, you're sort yeah. of, you know, the idea comes first, but then it's like, well, when the idea doesn't catch on, we have to find someone to blame. And it must be must be you, must be me, must be the government, must be someone who's conspiring to hide this, you know, yeah. fantastical knowledge. Right. And I think that becomes a really, that's, that's a really easy fallback position. Because I think everybody knows, you know, we all, we all live, for those of us who live through Watergate, for example, yeah, the government, people high up in the government pull stuff, and there are conspiracies, and they do all kinds of weird stuff, so that maybe we can generalize and say that about everything. I mean, you, you have people saying we never landed on the moon, that conspiracy theory. You have people saying that, that there were giant, that, that the Smithsonian Institution is hiding the skeletons of giant human beings that were found in the 19th century. Or maybe they put them on a barge and they sailed out into the middle of the ocean and they sunk them in the ocean because they don't want people to know the, the horrible truth about ancient giants. I've even heard, you guys are probably familiar with the, uh, the face on Mars, the claim that U.S. satellites, uh, U.S. orbiters have photographed 
giant, a giant city on Mars, and there's a, the carving of a great space. And now when they went back and took higher resolution images, there were no such things there. And one of the claims is that NASA sent up nuclear weapons and blew up the ancient city so we wouldn't know. The question that I've always asked, that I always have to ask is, why in the, why in the world if, for example, I found evidence of a giant human being in my excavations in Connecticut, why in the world would I try to hide that? That discovery would make me famous. I could write a book about it and get rich. I could get a huge grant from National Geographic. I could get my own television show. Why in the world would I turn those things down for some arcane, occult reason why I'm part of this this conspiracy to keep that stuff quiet. It makes no sense. And you know what? The only people who can say that archaeologists are part of a conspiracy to hide stuff are people who don't know any archaeologists. Because I'm here to tell you, well, archaeologists talk too much, we drink too much, we brag too much, and if any of us found anything like that, we would be beating the path to the door of the local news, uh, newspaper and uh, and. National Geographic and H, the History Channel, and we would be shouting from the rooftops our fantastic discovery. We don't do that because we don't. We have made those discoveries. I get. I have gotten emails. I've received emails where people just say that I'm delusional, that I don't. I'm deluded, and I won't accept the truth. But I get emails as well from people who say I have a suspicion fader that you know what's going on but you're keeping it secret. Again, it's just, I, I, I just don't even know how to respond to that because why would I do that? I have no reason to do that. Um, but then what I do is I confess. I say, yeah, me and the other scientists, we meet alternate Thursdays in a church basement in Kansas City, and we, we plot our conspiracies, and this week it's, it's my turn to bring the dip. You know, I I think my favorite one of this, which I I think is incredibly damaging, is that, you know, they have a secret cure for cancer, but they're hiding it because it's more profitable not to have a cure for cancer. And it just doesn't make any sense on its face. I mean, imagine if you had that pill you could take that would get rid of your cancer. (laughs) You know, people would pay. You know, everyone would take it and it would cost money. So I don't understand why why people come up with this, and then it sort of ignores the fact that you know we've cured tons of diseases <laughs> over time. Right, right, right. And that's been open about. The other thing about it too is that Benjamin Franklin, I think, said it best. He said that three people can pe- can keep a secret if two of them are dead. And <laughs> what he was saying was, imagine let's let's look at the moon landing for example, because I can give you some numbers when you do when you look at the the the, the the buildup from 62 when Kennedy said we're going to land on, a man on the moon before the end of the decade and 69 when Neil Armstrong said, you know, a small step for man, a giant step for mankind. Um, those years, about 400,000 people working for NASA or contractors and subcontractors working on all of the parts of the spaceship, of the life support system, of the fuel system, of the of the spacesuits, Hamilton Standard here in Connecticut played an active role in building spacesuits, at least for the space shuttle. So all of those people, directly and indirectly, know what's working and what's not. And maybe not 400,000, maybe 10%. 40,000 of those people would have to know this technology isn't working. No way we can land a man on the moon. We can't do it. And those 40,000 people from 1969 to today, 50 years later, would have to have been kept keeping that secret, the biggest secret ever in the history of the world, they'd have to keep it perfectly for 40,000 people for 50 years. What are the odds of that, that that nobody's going to his local newspaper, nobody's going to his local TV station saying, hey, listen, I'm sick of this story about the moon landing. I know the truth. I want to blow the lid off of it. And yet that, that, is, that has not happened. It hasn't happened because there was no conspiracy. There even uh, there's a recent article where they did a, a the researchers did a computer simulation of a, of conspiracy 
um, having to do with climate change. Um, another one I think was the moon landing, where they just they manipulated numbers. How many people could keep a secret for how long? And it's it was really pretty simple. Their results: the bigger the number of people, the longer since whatever happened happened, the less the chance, the lower the chance that that that, that conspiracy can work. And so something like a cure for cancer, people understand there are probably millions of people working in the medical industry working on a cure for cancer. And if any of them knew, we got it, we nailed it. For them to keep that secret, it would it it, it is not reasonable to believe that that could happen. So the whole the conspiracy stuff, it's just I think you can you can chuck that. So let me ask you another question about the book. So yeah. when you started writing your books, um, I mean, you, what you said was, that, you know, there weren't anything like this out there. Right. And, and college professors weren't addressing it, maybe for, for a variety of reasons. Has that changed? I mean, are there yeah. – is, yeah. is this becoming a thing? Are there more classes offered just like yours? Absolutely. And that's why – and my publisher is really happy about that because that means my book is being adopted. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. By, by, <laughs> all over the country. Um, I couldn't even give you a number of how many copies ultimately that book has sold, but it's been a lot, and, and it continues to be used in college classrooms. There are other people writing books now. Uh, a colleague of mine, Jeb Card, wrote this wonderful book called Spooky Archaeology, in which it's not so much a debunking book like mine. It's, well, let's look at the history of these things. And one of the things that Jeb has shown is that although we think of you know, ancient aliens as being a modern thing, a lot of this can be traced back to the Victorian era, back in the late 19th century, when people are, are you know, spiritualism is a really big deal, and astrology is a really big deal, and the notion that maybe in the, the mythic past, a long, long time ago, things were entirely different, and maybe there were demons or, and alien beasts and spirits and devils, and maybe some of them come from outer space, and that that was... That was sort of a common thing in the Victorian era. Jeb cycles through all that stuff. And the, the philosophy called Theosophy with Madame Blavatsky of all these, these old, that the earth has gone through a series of, of incarnations with different races. Um, and even, even H.P. Lovecraft with his, the Cthulhu mythos, these, these aliens that look like octopuses who built these giant um, structures in the Pacific. So it's just this ongoing thing. And so Jeb has, has, has written a book about that. And there, there are more people giving papers about it, more people involved in pseudo-archaeology. And one of the great places where this is happening, of course, is on the Internet, uh, blogs and on Twitter. So you have Archie Fantasies, Archaeological Fantasies, that does a podcast once a month on these things. Steph Hamholder, who's a, an archaeologist in Canada who has – Written uh, has a blog and writes a bunch of stuff about what's called pseudo-archaeology. So I think that people finally, I think, are getting the are, are recognizing that this is something that you really need to address. Because when you go out there and talk about that wonderful archaeology project you're working on, and people only want to know about ancient aliens or Atlantis, there's there's a problem. And uh, and then that gets us even into the real the deep weeds of how so much of ancient aliens and so much of Atlantis is about people, people rarely question, well, how could the Romans have built the Colosseum without outside help? Or how could the Greeks have built the Parthenon without outside help? But it's always, you know, people in Africa or people in the Americas or people in Asia where the question is, how could they have done these things without outside help? And yeah, those people are are brown skinned. They're not white folks. And so I think that there is something to that. That there is a racist undercurrent to at least some of these claims. That and that's really pernicious. You know, the notion that well, Egyptians, they're Africans. How could they have figured out the pyramids? Well, we're not asking that question about the Romans in the Colosseum. So I think that that there's an underlying problem there that absolutely needs to be addressed. I think there's a serious, I mean, I'll agree with you there. I think there's also a serious reasoning problem because it's sort of like we look at these ancient 
structures, and we say, wow, that's so amazing, but it's amazing in the sense that we're thinking about it being built by these ancient societies. Right. Um, but I, I would hope that if a if if there was a civilization that could take a flying saucer from one side of the universe to the other, that they could do a little bit better. I mean, well, why why aren't you putting air conditioning and elevators in the pyramids? Why why is the technology only about as good as you know what was available at that time? So it it just seems to me that people don't really think through these ideas any further than just saying, well, it couldn't have been them. It must have been a spaceship. Well, the part of the thing there, too, is that people tend to focus on, when they're talking about, say, the pyramids, the say, the Great Pyramid, Khufu's Pyramid, the, the, the three pyramids in Giza. And what they don't understand or recognize is that, well, that was the culmination of about 100 years of trial and error. So we have the Collapse Pyramid, oops. We have the Bent Pyramid. When they literally got two-thirds of the way up, the thing was starting to crack. They said, oh, my God, if we continue at that same angle, there's going to be so much stone, the weight's going to collapse it. We'll change the angle, okay? We actually angle it in so it'll be easier to finish, and we'll just leave it that way. It's it's this really janky-looking pyramid, right, with a big big bend in it. Um, And it's not until after all that work that Sneferu, the pharaoh Sneferu, has the red pyramid built, which is a real, you know, geometric, three sides, triangles, common apex. So it's, what I I tell my students is, look, if the aliens had to take 100 years to figure out how to build pyramids, if they land on Earth and ask you to take a ride in their flying saucer, turn them down. Because if their technology is that, you know, (laughs) iffy, I would not get on this. I'm not so sure that they can uh, safely get you from here to there in the universe. The, the, the The process we see again and again with Stonehenge, with the pyramids, with the pyramids in Mexico, is that it's a very human process of trial and error. Things get bigger, they get more sophisticated, they get more complicated. I tell kids, look at your iPhone today, now look at what an an iPod looked like back when it first started. Because that's, you're looking at the first step and the the final step. If all you had was your, you know, whatever the the, uh, the, uh, iPhone is today, the newest one, uh, iPhone 11 or whatever, if that's all you had, if that just appeared out of nowhere, now you've got a, a question. But it didn't. There's, there's years and years and years of development. That's what archaeology is all about, finding that material, the material evidence of that development. And when you see that, you have to understand that's a very human process. Trial and error, back to the drawing board, try again, eventually we get it right. That's the pyramids. That's all the other technology we see in the world, uh, in the ancient world. That's what we see. The slow process of trial and error until they finally reach a kind of end product. So do you think this this sort of faulty reasoning um, inhibits people from buying into ideas like evolution too? I mean, I hear that same sort of argument like, well, how did an eyeball just crawl out of the ocean? And it's like, I don't think Richard Dawkins... You know, says an eyeball, fully formed, crawled out of the ocean. No, no, no. There's a process where these things just sort of happen over time, very slowly through trial and error, too. Right, right. But you know, you know that in, in um, Eric Vardonikin's, Vardonikin was interviewed by Playboy magazine back in the '70s, and they flat out asked him, you know, where? So human beings, where do we come from? And Vardonikin, using these words, said, "The aliens landed on the planet." They found, you know, ape-like creatures, and they mated with them. They had sex with these creatures, and that's how evolution happened. So that the next step in evolution was a, a mixture, a hybrid, between very advanced, sophisticated aliens and some ape-like creature on Earth. And then, then they came back and mated with those hybrids, and that's how we got people today, through a series of hybridizations with the aliens. Now, later on, Vandanikin said, no, 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 I, I meant, you know, artificial. I meant genetic recombination. But he clearly said in the interview that he was talking about aliens having sex with our ancestors. So how's that for uh, kind of a, oh, my God, really? But that's what he said. So I guess if you're an ancient aliens fan, that's how evolution happened. It was directly the result of, of uh, interst- interstellar uh, uh, mating between aliens and humans, uh, human ancestors. 
What role do you think religion in society plays in some of these beliefs? I mean, I see coverage all the time of, hey, we found Noah's Ark. You know, we've we've got the, the, you know the wood panels, right? Or I found uh, a giant in in buried in Romania, right, right. and that proves the biblical account. Yeah, but that, that's a, that, that's a, there's a long a long standing issue. Um, look, when the Cardiff giant was found in New York in 1869, it was embraced by religious people. It was brought up in sermons as a, he's evidence of the stories of the Bible. There are giant there were giants in the earth in those days. Goliath is the most obvious example. The kingdom of Og, which we think is in Syria, was supposed to be populated by giant men, eight, nine, ten or more feet tall. Um, if you go online and you look up giants or giantology, you will find websites, you'll find YouTube videos of people absolutely swearing to the fact that the giants re re recorded in history, the, the giants that supposedly their skeletons were found um, and are secreted in the Smithsonian. That those guys are the Nephilim, the angels fallen from heaven who mated with human women and created this race of giants. Um, so yeah, there's that. There's and the Noah's Ark thing, which I think is really pretty hilarious. Um, first of all, the Bible does not say that the Ark landed on Mount Ararat. It says the mountains of Ararat, which is a whole mountain chain. Mount Ararat only bears that name for the last few centuries. So everybody goes there because they think that's where the Bible says the, the Ark would have landed. But that's not even true. And you know what? It's, it, the, the story of, of the, the Ark is one in which people are constantly going up there, finding evidence, and they're never able to replicate it. Oh, uh, you know what? The, we took pictures, but they didn't come out. Or, yeah, we, we go back and we can't find it anymore because the glacier is moving. Um, my, my favorite, 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 favorite story is that and this was an, uh, a, a video about the discovery of Noah's Ark. And uh, these, apparently a guy in California uh, said he was part of an expedition uh, that, that went up to the top of the mountain. And he brought back a piece of wood from the Ark and he actually showed it to uh, the people who made the movie and they, they videotaped it. And they included it in the movie as this is a spectacular piece of evidence. After the movie was released, the guy said that he completely had scammed them, that the wood was, and said if they had looked carefully, they would have identified that the species of wood is of a kind of tree that grows only in California. And he made it, the way he made it look old, so he wanted to make it look old, is he marinated it in teriyaki sauce. So... Apparently, these people who showed it to, it, it never occurred to them to what? It didn't pass the smell test. You know that old saying? They didn't smell and go, wow, Noah's Ark smells like a, a Chinese marinade. <laughs> yeah. That's the kind of issues we have. Here's the, the bottom line for anybody who listens to this and gets mad at me for being a skeptic. Listen, anybody can shut me up on any one of these issues with, you know what, evidence, data. Uh, that's that's the that's the only way um, a scientist that's the only way a rationalist is going to change their perspective is if there's evidence that shows that our perspective is wrong. So yeah, find Noah's Ark. Nobody has, and we'll we'll rethink this. Find uh, a, an actual skeleton of an actual giant, and we will rethink this. Of course, but until that point, you know, there's it, again. You can't, you, you, you can't fool everybody. You certainly can't fool people who have a really good handle on the evidence that exists. And the deal about this, too, is that scientists change their minds all of the time. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. Science is not about um, attaining some ultimate and holy truth. We're all about knowledge. And knowledge grows, and we have to go back and rethink what we, we thought we knew, and we have to tweak it. And we have to expand it and edit it. And sometimes we have to go back and say, you know what? Totally wrong. We need a new, we need a new model. When I began teaching archaeology, 1977, I could honestly tell my students the oldest evidence for anatomically modern people, that a skeletons that look just like ours, goes back about 40,000 years, maybe in southern Europe. I know, know, when I teach that same class, I tell them the earliest evidence for anatomically modern homo sapiens, folks who look just like us, 
300,000 years old, and it's in northern Africa. Now, I don't do that grudgingly. I wasn't bummed. I wasn't depressed. I wasn't disappointed that the 40,000 year turned out to be wrong. I was thrilled that new evidence was, was at first it was 100,000, and then it was 200,000, and now it's about 300,000. I'm thrilled when that new evidence comes out. And if next year, or 10 years, or 100 years, they find evidence that's even older, well, that's, that's absolutely fantastic. That's great. But again, we don't do it because somebody said, well, I once heard on a blog, or I once heard on a podcast, that's not the way science has to work. It's got to work through this process of data collection, interpretation, analysis, publication, peer review. And that's how what we think we know is almost certainly, it, that's how, that's how we, we increase the likelihood that what we think we know is the way things really are. Wow, fantastic. What a, what a great interview. Um, we, we will be closing it up now. So um, our guest has been uh, Dr. Ken Fader, and the book is Fraud, Smiths, Mysteries, Science, and Pseudoscience in Archaeology. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for inviting me. This was an absolute pleasure. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! How dare you? If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.